بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 101 in this ongoing series we've been doing. And from what I can tell, this is the longest running series we've had here so far. And we've spent now the last three or four weeks talking about a very pivotal moment in the seerah. And that concerns the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. And we spoke about everything leading up to it and the stalemate before it, and the terms of the treaty last week. Last week we recounted the actual contract or sulh and the terms that were put forward. And remember that one of the terms of the treaty was, and I quote, that they will stop all war between their people for 10 years, during which time the people will be safe and will not harm one another on the condition that any man who comes to Muhammad from Quraysh without the permission of his guardian will be returned to them. And any man who comes to Quraysh from those with Muhammad will not be returned. This particular term of the treaty was a sore point for many of the Muslims. And there are some stories in connection with this term of the treaty that we want to talk about today, as well as some other details regarding what transpired after the treaty between Mecca and Medina as they were making their way back to Medina. So last week we mentioned, and the week before, we mentioned Suhail ibn Amr. Suhail ibn Amr who became the last negotiator uh, under whom this treaty was drawn up between him on behalf of Quraysh and the Prophet And we mentioned that Suhail ibn Amr had two sons. The first son, his name was Abdullah, and the other one was named Abu Jandal. We mentioned that Abdullah managed to make hijrah through Arus, he was among the people of Mecca, and as the people of Mecca were gathering their supplies and heading out to Badr to confront the Muslims, he went with the troops going to Badr, and when he got to Badr, he managed to escape and join the Muslim side and make his hijrah through that way. But his other brother, his younger brother, Abu Jandal, was not so fortunate. We mentioned that his father realized that his son Abu Jandal was also a Muslim. So he had his servants go to Abu Jandal, chain him up, beat him, deprive him of food and water, and keep him under what we may term a kind of house arrest, if you will. And he remained in that state post-Badr until the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. So that's four and a half years he's 
enduring these harsh conditions of basically being a prisoner in his own home because he is a Muslim and his father does not want him to make hijrah to Medina. So Ibn Hisham uh, and before him Ibn Ishaq and others after them, they narrate a few events in connection with Abu Jandal, this younger brother. It mentions, Ibn Hisham cites a narration that says that you could see on the body of Abu Jandal the effects of torture. You could see scars. And Ibn Hisham also narrates that as the treaty was being drawn up between the Prophet and Suhail ibn Amr, Abu Jandal managed to get up out of his home and stagger his way in chains all the way from the south of Mecca, where he was located, to Al-Hudaybiyah as they were drawing up this treaty. Now you, you have to understand, he doesn't know what's going on at Hudaybiyah. He doesn't know the terms of the treaty and how that is going to impact him. But he sees this as an opportunity to make hijrah. Because if he can join up with the Muslims who are close by now, numbering 14 to 1500, and join up with them, maybe he can get on that caravan and head back, head to Medina. So he goes to Al-Hudaybiyah, staggering in his chains. And the narration says he manages to get a hold of a sword. It doesn't say how, but it's a society with weapons. So we can presume that he found one somewhere. Maybe it was in his own house. And he managed to grab this sword. And he goes staggering with a sword in his hand all the way to Al-Hudaybiyah. And when he gets there, they were just drawing up the treaty. And his father, Suhail, sees him. And he goes over to Abu Jandal, his own son, and smacks him in the face. And he says, Ya Muhammad, this is what I will hold you accountable for first, that you will hand him back to me. He is not going anywhere. But the treaty, you understand, was not yet finalized. So there was perhaps a sliver of an opportunity for him to join the Muslims. The terms haven't yet taken effect. And for this reason, the Prophet ﷺ says, the treaty hasn't been completed yet. But Suhail was not having any of it. He insisted and said, by Allah, I will not make any truce with you at all if he's allowed to join you. So he wasn't budging. The Prophet ﷺ was trying to appeal to Suhail ibn Amr and said to him, grant him to me, just grant him to me. His guardianship, you know, he'll look after him and he'll go with them to Medina. But Suhail refused. I will do no such thing, he said. And this back and forth went on for a while with the Prophet ﷺ pleading on behalf of Abu Jandal to allow him to join the Muslims and go to Medina. And he's repeatedly appealing to Suhail, but Suhail is not budging on this. So finally, Mikraz ibn Hafs, who's featured in this story a couple of times as a negotiator or an attempted negotiator before this, Mikraz ibn Hafs is there, and he tries to appease the Prophet by saying, we will give a guarantee regarding Abu Jandal. What does that mean? 
He's basically telling the Prophet that although Abu Jandal cannot leave Mecca, he is promised that no more harm will be done to him. The Prophet is given this promise by Mikraz bin Hafs that although he can't leave, Abu Jandal will no longer be harmed from this day going forward. And so the Prophet of course agrees to this term. But not before Suhail goes and grabs Abu Jandal and drags him to return him to Quraysh. So you have to picture the scene. You imagine if you were the son of someone like Suhail, who is Khatibu Quraysh. He is the, the orator of Quraysh. He is a person of authority and respectability among his home. And imagine he finds out you're a Muslim and he beats you, he chains you up and keeps you under house arrest and you're in that condition for four and a half years. And all of a sudden you see a glimmer of hope. The Muslims are here in Hudaybiyah. Maybe I can join them. And you get there in high hopes that you can finally go to the community and be with the Prophet And you get there in all that excitement and then all of a sudden your hopes are dashed. And you're told, nope. You have to go back. So being told we're not going to beat him anymore, it's a very small consolation, at least for Abu Jandal. So Abu Jandal is caught in all of this and he says to the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims, O oh Muslims, will I be returned to the idol worshippers so they can mistreat me and persecute me so I abandon my deen? Don't you see what I've been going through? He's in this state. And the Prophet ﷺ is pained on seeing this condition of Abu Jandal. And at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ is seeing the big picture. Right? He's not making a decision in the immediate moment based on the feelings for Abu Jandal and his suffering. He's also looking at the big picture of what this treaty will allow what it will bring forth of good, not just for individual Muslims, but also for the spread of La ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulullah, the deen. So he says to Abu Jandal, Ya Abu Jandal, be steadfast and bear this for the sake of Allah. For Allah will provide for you and those with you of the weak, he will give you all an opening and he will give you relief. You pay very close attention to the wording here. He's not just talking about Abu Jandal. He says, you and those with you of the Musladafin, he'll grant you faraj and grant you a fath, an opening and a relief. He said to him, we have drawn up a treaty between us and them and we have exchanged a promise and we cannot betray this. So Abu Jandal, you can only imagine what he's feeling in this moment hearing this. He's chained and abused for all this time and he's there and he's told he has to go back. The very terms of the treaty mean that he's not going anywhere. It's very disappointing to him, but of course he obeys the Prophet ﷺ. You know, of course, we have the advantage of hindsight. It's very easy to read history, any history, 
and think, oh, well, you know, if I was there or if I was in charge, I would have done this and that. It's very easy to be an armchair quarterback or an armchair general and look back on historic events and think, well, what I would have done differently, it would have turned out differently, it would have been this or that. It's easy because we have hindsight. But in that immediate moment, people aren't necessarily seeing what will be the long-term effects of the treaty. So this means that for a large number of the Sahaba in that moment, they are upset and they fear that this concession in the treaty will actually be an impediment to the spread of the deen. How so? Imagine if this condition, the condition that anyone who becomes a Muslim who goes to Medina without permission can be brought back, but anyone who leaves Medina and goes to Mecca will not be brought back to Medina. Imagine if that condition was in effect from day one of the Prophet's Hijrah. If that was in effect from day one, how many people would have actually been muhajirun? How many people would have been able to make hijrah at all? So they're thinking that this, would, this is going to seriously impede the deen, right? So after all of these attempts were exhausted and Abu Jandal knows that he has no choice but to go back, this didn't stop some of the Sahaba from trying to give him a little way out. And we have this narration from Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu. It mentions that when Abu Jandal was about to be brought back to Mecca, Umar radiallahu anhu stands up and goes over to Abu Jandal and says to him, Isbir, be patient, be steadfast, and realize that their blood is worthless. And as he says that, he glances over at his sword that's in the hilt, that's in the scabbard, and it's attached to him, his own sword. He's, he's hinting like this. What is he trying to communicate? Without using his words, he's hinting to Abu Jandal, you know, this is a chance. If you take the sword, it's on you, right? We're not in Medina, so the treaty applies to those in Medina. You have a chance, maybe if you want to fight these people, maybe you can fight your way out of this and escape. He's giving him a hint. But Abu Jandal decides not to take the sword. He's not going to use it against his father or against Mikraz bin Hafs. So he didn't take the sword. He goes back to Mecca. But at least he has this promise that he's not going to be tortured anymore. So this happened right as the terms of the treaty were being spelled out. So we come to the treaty, we talked about that last week and all of the terms. Now in the seerah, we get to the story about the return trip from Al-Hudaybiyah to Medina. And there were a few incidents that happened uh, during that time. Now in the seerah, it mentions that the Muslims remained in Al-Hudaybiyah for about 20 days, and then they returned to Medina. And when they were in between uh, Hudaybiyah and Medina, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the entirety of Surah Al-Fatih to the Prophet sallallahu There aren't many chapters of the Qur'an that were, were revealed in their entirety like this, all in, at once. Surah Al-Fatih is one of them. 
And after it was revealed, as they were between Hudaybiyah and Medina, the Prophet ﷺ called Umar radiallahu anhu. He summoned him and said, A surah has been revealed to me this night that is more beloved to me than the entire world. And then he had all of the people of the 1500 gathered together and he was very full of joy and happiness and he recited the entirety of Surah Al-Fatih to the Muslims there. And there's a lesson here because the Muslims are going back to Medina and you get the, you get the sense that a lot of them feel dejected. They feel that this wasn't really a victory. They thought they were going to make Umrah and then they're in this stalemate stuck in Al-Hudaybiyah for almost three weeks. And then the treaty comes and it says that these are the terms and among them they can't make Umrah that year. They didn't really see it as a fath, as an opening or a victory. So they're going back to Medina, perhaps entertaining those thoughts. But as they're feeling that Allah reveals this chapter, which begins with, إِنَّا فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحًا مُبِينَا We've given you a clear victory. So there is a lesson in this. Often what appears as a closing is a means to a fath, to an opening. How many things in our life appear as doors closing that we don't necessarily want to close, but we don't realize until later that that closing led to an actual fath, far greater than what we had before that door was closed. And that's what happened with them. Because in Arabic, the word fath, it means the opening of what was closed. And this sulh was a closed matter. There was no possibility of a treaty before this because they're just coming off of Ghazwatul Ahzab and before that Uhud and before that Badr and excursions here and there. But this treaty became the means for the fath. And the holding back of the Muslims from making their Umrah that year became the means of the greater Fath, where not only did they get to make Umrah, they got to make Hajj, and people entered into Islam in droves, and it was the end of all hostility and warfare. So it was the means to the great Fath. So what appeared to be a humiliation was actually a great distinction and honor. Because now the people after the treaty are safe to mix with one another. They're safe to engage in da'wah without fear. They're safe to recite the Qur'an to people who either had closed their ears or were told to close their ears by others or who never had the chance to hear it properly in the first place. As we mentioned last week, that statement from uh, Sheikh Saeed Nursi, the great Turkish scholar, that when people are in states of conflict and war, it's very difficult for them to use their aql. They're caught up in the, the heat of war and passions of conflict. It's very difficult for them to hear uh, a message from the other side. But now that hostilities have been smoothed over temporarily through the treaty, they can now lend an ear and hear the message so the lesson for us as a, as a moral and spiritual lesson is very profound. How many doors have been closed in our life that we don't like, but then later on we realize that with that closing came a fath, an opening far better than what was closed. How many opportunities did we lose 
that we wanted to achieve, only to realize later that what we gained afterwards was better, and that what we thought was good was actually not that good for us, and that if those doors were never closed, we may have gone through those doors to something that is not really that good for us. So this happens, you know, life experience teaches you that. Sometimes things don't work out in the immediate moment, but then as time goes by, you realize that was actually good for me. And if it had remained open forever, I would have gone through that door and who knows where I would have been five years later, right? So this is a lesson. Uh, Imam al-Bayhaqi, uh, going back to this narrative, uh, he relates in his hadith compilation, Dala'il al-Nubuwa, that Urwa said, some of the companions said that this was not a fatr, it was not a victory. They said, we've been prevented from the sacred house, and so have our sacrificial animals. This is not a fatr. And when this reached the Prophet ﷺ, he said, ill is this talk, meaning this talk is not sound. It's not good. He says, indeed, this is the greatest fatr, the greatest fatr. As we mentioned before, the greatest fatr was not fathu Mecca. When Allah says fatha al-mubina, it refers to this treaty because it was the means to the fatr of Mecca, which was made possible because of this treaty. And uh, subhanAllah, we note from the seerah that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu uh, in the eighth year after the hijrah, he mentions that he saw Suhail ibn Amr, the one who's officiating this treaty between the Muslims and Quraysh. He says, I saw Suhail ibn Amr in the eighth year after hijrah at the Hajj, standing by the sacrificial animal of his. And he was bringing the, the camel of the Prophet, uh, bringing the camel for sacrifice to the Prophet and then when the Prophet called for the barber, the halaq, to, to shave his head, I saw Suhail ibn Amr collecting some of those hairs and putting them to his eyes, tabarrukan, you know, seeking the blessings from the, the athar or the relics or the hairs of the Prophet So he goes from an enemy to someone who's a Muslim who is seeking barakah from the effects of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam? And this is a confirmation of the words of Allah Taala, where Allah Taala mentions in Surah Al-Mumtahana, "Asa Allahu an yajjal bainakum wa bain al-ladin aadaytum minhum mawadda, wallahu qadir, wallahu ghafur rahim." Perhaps Allah will put between you and those with whom you had enmity. He'll put love between you. Wallahu Qadir, Allah has all power to do these things, and Allah is all forgiving and merciful. So that's a confirmation. Now, going back to their return to Medina, they're marching through the through the days, making their way back all the way from Hudaybiyah. And after a very long march, everyone was exhausted and they set up camp for the night. And as they set up the camp, the Prophet ﷺ asked, who is going to stand guard over us as we sleep? And 
it was Bilal ibn Abi Rabah radiallahu anhu who volunteered to stand guard that night and watch over the Muslims who were sleeping. But everyone is so exhausted. They're marching for miles and miles and miles every single day. And Bilal is also tired, even though he's standing guard. So as he's standing guard while the rest of the Muslims are sleeping, he falls asleep too. So now everyone is sleeping, including the guard. And the first person to wake up was either Abu Bakr or Umar. There's some difference in the narrations. And they woke up, not at Fajr time, but they woke up when they felt the rays of the sun on them. They're sleeping outdoors. They wake up when they feel the heat of the rays of the sun. So you know, in Arabia, that's probably around 8 o'clock, 8.30, 9 at the latest. That's when you'd start to feel that heat. So they wake up and realize that they all missed the Fajr prayer. And you have to appreciate how tired they were. Because they were so tired that it wasn't five people who overslept because of their fatigue. It wasn't 20. It wasn't 100. It was all 1,500 of them, including the Prophet All of them were asleep, you know, because Bilal fell asleep. So otherwise, he would wake them up with what? With the Adhan. But he's asleep too. So Abu Bakr or Omar, depending on the narration, wakes up to the rays of the sun on his face and he begins to utter the takbir. Allahu Akbar, subhanAllah. You know, for them, the idea of missing Fajr, as I, I, I mentioned in the khutbah the other day, you know, for many that's, that's the norm. And actually getting up on time is the exception. For them, sleeping past Fajr wasn't even an exception. It was not an exception. This is literally the first time it happened in the history. So they wake up and the Prophet ﷺ wakes up and sees that Bilal is sleeping. And one of the things you gain from the narration too, they don't go and wake up the Prophet ﷺ. They don't disturb him. Uh, Bilal was asleep. So he was actually, one narration says he was the last to fall asleep because he was standing guard. He was also the last one to wake up. So everyone's waking up. You can imagine he's given this job to stand guard overnight. He's so tired, he falls asleep. And he's also the last one to wake up. And when he's waking up, everyone's up looking at him. What's going on? They're looking at him. The Prophet ﷺ leads the way, leading from the front. And he goes and he makes the wudu and he leads the fajr prayer. And after they're finished, the Prophet ﷺ said to them, Had Allah willed you not to sleep, you would not have slept. But He wanted this, sleeping past Fajr, He wanted this for those who will come after you. What does that mean? The Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith, My eyes sleep, but my heart does not. Allah willed to put him in that state, as well as everyone else, all 1,500, exactly so this would happen, so that the future ummah would know what to do when they miss Fajr. So a lot of the times, you know, it's not neglect, right? It's something Allah created within them in that moment, so that what the Prophet ﷺ does is a legislation for us teaching us what we should do if we're in a similar situation, whether it's sleeping outside or, you know, maybe you, you're 
You didn't set your alarm clock properly and you were tired. You didn't hear it. Whatever reason, right? This is legislation. So he demonstrates for us what to do. So that happened on the trip too. And that stood out because it was the first time. Now there's a few different narrations which indicate it happened more than once. Some of the narrations indicate that it happened more than once. Some indicates this is the only time. Most likely it happened more than once. And this is the first time. Now, after they get back to Medina, something else happens. They get back to the Medina, and not long after that, some women of Quraysh make their way from Mecca to Medina. And they come professing Islam, saying that they are Muslims. Among them was one woman named Umm Kulthum. Now this is Umm Kulthum, the daughter of Utbah ibn Abi Mu'ayl. Now you'll remember Utbah was a fierce opponent of the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca in the hadith about the dumping of the camel entrails on his blessed back as he was in Salat. That was him. That was him who did it. But his daughter is a Muslim. She leaves Mecca, she goes to Medina, and she professes Islam. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed some ayat in connection with her as well as other women who began to make hijrah to Medina. And you're wondering how they're going to do that given the terms of the treaty. We'll look at that soon. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse about her and others like her when he says, Ya amanu, idha ja'akumul Allahu a'lamu bi'imanihin fa'in alimtumuhunna mu'minatin fala tarji'uhunna ila al-kuffar la hunna hillun lahum wala hum yuhilluna lahun Allah says, O oh, you who believe, whenever the believing women come to you as muhajirat, making hijrah, famtahinuhun, examine them, test them. This is the namesake of the chapter, Suratu al mumtahana the one, the woman who is tested. Test them, examine them. Allah knows best as regard to their iman. Then if you know them as true believers, do not send them back to the disbelievers. They are not lawful for the believers as wives, and the disbelievers are not lawful to them as husbands. So this is the test, the test of their iman. What form did the test take? We have some narrations which mention that they would be asked to take an oath, a, a yameen, that they did not make their way to Medina just seeking to escape their husbands because they don't want to be with them anymore and they won't divorce them, but rather their only motivation for going is out of iman, belief in Allah and His Messenger. So any woman from Quraysh who took that oath upon their arrival, would then give the bay'atun nisa. The bay'atun nisa is the specific pledge of allegiance. Uh, now I do this hand-in-hand thing, but this, it wasn't with the hand for the women. But they would give the bay'ah and they would not be sent back. Now, for Umm Kulthum, she didn't have a husband in Mecca. She was single. So when she gets to Medina, she takes the oath, she gives the bay'ah, she's allowed to stay, and she gets married 
to Zayd ibn al-Haritha, who was the ex-husband of whom? Zainab. So now he got remarried, right? She was eventually widowed when Zayd ibn al-Haritha was martyred at Mu'tah. So later on, she got remarried to Zubair ibn al-Awam, radiallahu anhu. She got married to him, and she gave birth to a daughter named Zainab, coincidentally. And he later divorced her. And she later got married to Abdurrahman ibn Auf, radiallahu anhu. And she bore him two sons before he died. So she, he died, and then she got married to Amr ibn As, and she lived with him until she died, radiallahu anha. And you see here that they didn't have the same hang-ups and stigma attached to marriage and remarriage after divorce that we find in some cultures. It wasn't like that. When she gets married, someone dies, she becomes a widow, she remarries. She gets divorced, she remarries. She becomes a widow again, she remarries. There's no stigma attached to that. So this is her, radiallahu anha. Now the question, of course, that you're wondering is how can they go to Medina like this making hijrah when the terms of the treaty says if they go without permission, they have to come back to Mecca. But let's read the treaty again. Read it carefully. The term of the treaty says, any man who... Uh, mm, you, you caught it, right? Any man who comes to Muhammad from Quraysh without the permission of his guardian will be returned to them, and any man who comes to Quraysh from those with Muhammad will not be returned. So as you see, the treaty says man, it doesn't say woman. So the Prophet ﷺ is applying the terms of the treaty literally. Even if Quraysh might have intended everyone, the word is man, so it's, it's man, literally. So they can't argue the treaty's been broken, it hasn't been broken. It literally says man. It doesn't matter what you intended. You know, you know when you draw up contracts, you get a lawyer because these are the kind of things that, that happen if you're not careful in how you word it. If you draw, up with a con with, draw the contract with a lawyer, they're going to say man, woman, child. They make it so clear that there's no wiggle room out of it. But here there's enough ambiguity. So he's not breaking the treaty. He's just applying it literally where it says man. So this term of the treaty was not violated. And we see that Quraysh didn't really try to stop it either. So it, is, it seems as if they also understood, okay, well, the word says man, so what can we do, right? So this application, this literal application of the treaty, comes up again in another famous story. And this is the story of Abu Basir, radiallahu anhu. It's a very famous story. So this treaty becomes tested, as it were, with the incident of Abu Basir. Now who was Abu Basir? Abu Basir is Utbah ibn Usaid al-Thaqafi. Utbah ibn Usaid al-Thaqafi, better known as Abu Basir with his kunya. He attempted to escape Mecca and make hijrah. And you have to wonder, do they know about the terms? And if they know about the terms, why would they do that? It's not clear, 
But people get desperate. They don't want to be in the situation. They find an opportunity to escape and they escape. So he manages to escape Mecca and go to Medina. But remember the term of the treaty. Here's a man. This is the first man who leaves Mecca without permission, going to make hijrah to Medina. Now the treaty is going to be tested. How are they going to respond? What are they going to do? So when he arrives in Medina, the Prophet ﷺ did not say anything. He did not tell him, you have to go back, pack your bags, you can't be here. He didn't say anything. Why is that? It's because when they agreed to the terms of the treaty, they agreed to the terms, but there was no, there was no article in the treaty mentioning any enforcement mechanism. So what that means is enforcing that part of the treaty is not his responsibility. Meaning if they want to get their man, they have to come and get their man. And if they come, we're not going to stop them. We will honor the treaty. But if they want him back, they have to fetch him. That's on them. It's not on us to have him pack his bags and send him back to Mecca. We're not going to kick him out. If you want him, you come and get him. And that's exactly what happened. So a few days after he arrived in Medina, a letter comes. And the letter is saying that this person has to be returned. And not long after the letter was sent, there were two people sent uh, by the Meccans to retrieve Abu Basir. Now when the Prophet ﷺ faces this, he speaks to Abu Basir and he says, We've given these people our word. And as you know, ghadr, betrayal, is not a part of our deen. Im implying that it is for some people. Ghadr is not a part of our deen. Betrayal. Allah will grant you and those with you among the mustada'afeen, the weak, an opening and a respite. Do those words sound familiar? He said the exact same thing to Abu Jandal. Abu Jandal was alone, and he says, Allah will grant you and those with you among the weak an opening and relief. He says to Abu Basir the exact same thing, even though he too is alone. That's implying something. So he says this to Abu Basir, exactly what he said to Abu Jandal. And this is where we get to the famous narration. And this narration is kind of long, so we're just going to present it in a summary fashion. So to summarize the narration, Abu Basir realizes there's nothing he can do. He has to go back. Out of his respect and deference to the Prophet ﷺ, he's going to listen to this. He agrees to go back. So he's going back with these two men who were sent to fetch him. And as they were on the road, leaving Medina, you know, these are not... There's nothing personal for them. They don't, have, they don't take him as an enemy. They're on the road talking and chatting and, you know, they're friendly with each other. You know, there's no enmity really between them. And as they get outside of Medina, meaning as they get outside of the political boundary, if you will, of Medina, that area called Medina, under the political control of the Prophet ﷺ, as they get outside of that, he begins to compliment one of the man's swords. 
You know, they're coming with swords, obviously. Everyone does. So this man has a particular sword, and he's complimenting the sword. He's like, wow, that sword is so awesome. It's so beautiful. It's so nice looking. Tell me about this sword. What have you done with it? Uh, how have you used it? Tell me your, you know, your heroism with this sword and your exploits with this fine blade of yours. He's just trying to get the guy talking about the sword. You know, people take pride in their weaponry and their gear and their stuff. And this man, is, he likes this. He's like, yeah, you know, I went to this and that battle and this and that battle. And with this sword, I killed so-and-so. And in this conflict, I struck down so-and-so. And Abu Basir is like, wow, that's amazing. That sword is so legendary. Please, you please, let me, let me just appreciate this, the awesomeness of this legendary sword. Please, just let me see it. It's just so beautiful. So the man, you know, in the back and forth, he's like, sure, he takes out the sword. Here's the sword. Abu Basir takes the sword, and as soon as he has it in his hands, it's over for that guy. He smites him with the sword immediately. Kills him right there on the spot. The other guy sees this, and he sprints back to Medina. He leaves Abu Basir all by himself. It's just him now and that man he struck down. Abu Basir is outside of the political authority of Medina. Not, and he's not in Mecca either. He's in what we would call a no man's land. It's tribal territory of some of the distant tribes, but it's not under anyone's political control, neither the Meccans nor the people of Medina. So he's there. This man, the second man, he runs back to Medina and he gets to the masjid, walks inside and says, my companion has been killed and I am next. Protect me. And some hours later, who walks back into Medina? Abu Basir radiallahu anhu. He comes back into Medina and he says, Ya Rasulullah, you have fulfilled your covenant. You fulfilled your terms of the treaty. But Allah enabled me to escape. The Prophet ﷺ then said to him his famous statement, uh, Woe unto his mother. Wail, woe unto his mother. And Ibn Hajar and Asqalani and others, they comment on this hadith. And they say, this statement of his is not a condemnation of Abu Basir. He's not condemning him when he says that. When he says, woe unto his mother, it's not a disapproval. What he's basically telling Abu Basir is, your life is now at risk because they are going to seek revenge against you for what you did. So woe unto his mother. His mother is going to be grieved as a result of this. And he's under threat. This is a subtle hint that he can't stay in Medina because they're going to come back. He can't stay in Medina. And he's not going to go to Mecca now because he knows if he goes back now, it's over for him. So Abu Basir is back in Medina, but he knows he can't stay. And the Prophet ﷺ then said, What a great warrior he is. If only there were men with him. If only there were men with him. Meaning to help him, to be with him. So by the Prophet ﷺ turning away from him and saying what he said, because he's not saying it to him directly, he's just saying it in the third person. By him doing this, he's hinting at him. 
that he cannot live in Medina and that he has to get out somewhere on his own before they send other people after word spreads and they come for him. So Abu Basir has to make a decision. What is he going to do? Can't stay in Medina, can't go back to Mecca. So what he does is leave Medina and go to this area near the Red Sea coast. It's close to present-day Jeddah. So that's where he goes. And once he gets there, he sends a message that he has delivered to Mecca to some of the mustada'afin, the Muslims who were too weak to make the hijrah, unable to now because of the treaty, telling some of those mustada'afin where he's located and that they should join him. So they don't want to be in Mecca, but they can't go to Medina. But now they have a third option where they have freedom to practice their deen, even though it's not in Medina in the company of the Prophet So there's three options for them. The worst option is to remain in, in Mecca, persecuted in, in their deen. The best option is Medina, but that's off the table because of the treaty. So the third option is really the only ideal option in this situation, and that is to leave Mecca, escape it, but not head to Medina, but head to the Red Sea coast near Jeddah, where Abu Basir is basically living on the land, just doing his thing. And so people began to escape in small batches from Mecca and make their way to this area where he's at. So you see what's happening here is they are not making a hijrah to Medina. The terms of the treaty are upheld. They're making that their own decision to leave, but they're not going to Medina. So the Prophet ﷺ is not responsible for them. They're not in the political territory of Medina under the authority of the Prophet ﷺ, politically speaking. So the terms of the treaty don't really apply to them in that sense. So they go in batches and they're independent and free. And eventually it was about 80 people in total who managed to escape Mecca and join Abu Basir out there on the Red Sea coast. So now they're all there. What are they going to do? Hmm? Uh, sort of. Not, we wouldn't use that term, but they engage in what has already been done before. As, as an independent group who are not party to this treaty and its terms, they began to lie in wait for these caravans of Quraysh going north and south, and they began to raid those caravans. And they raided the caravans, they got their goods, and they're just setting their life up there independently. And this would go on for about a year and a half. They're just raiding these caravans from time to time, just living their best life out there in the Red Sea coast as best as they could. And they're establishing the Salat, reciting Qur'an, they're doing their thing. They're establishing deen in these very limited circumstances. And the Prophet ﷺ, he is not responsible for them because they're outside of that jurisdiction. They're not a party to the treaty. So eventually, after a year and a half of this, the Quraysh had enough. And they knew that there's no way they can really stop them because it's such a small group. And they're roving bands here and there, and they're not under anyone's jurisdiction. So they figured that the best way to stop this is to actually go to the Prophet 
and ask him to intervene. And so a year and a half after this, they sent a delegation to Medina and in the presence of the Prophet ﷺ, they asked him to intervene by making an exception for them, allowing them in particular to resettle in Medina. So the Prophet ﷺ agreed to this and he sends a message that is delivered to Abu Basir telling them that they can stop this now, they can pack their things and make their way to Medina and they're now able to stay there and make the full hijrah. So they began to pack their things and they began to go. But there's, a, there's also a tragic element to this story as well. Because Abu Basir, when the message was received, had actually, he had been wounded in some raid. And he was suffering from a wound. We can presume it was infected. And as he got the letter, uh, he was still suffering from the effects of this wound. And before he was able to get his things together and go, he succumbed to those wounds and he died. So he actually died before being able to go back to Medina. So the, the, the last time he saw the Prophet ﷺ was that day when he was there in Medina after returning, having uh, struck that man down. So that was his last time. He didn't know it. So he died. And the narration mentions that the people with him buried him and they built a masjid next to where he's buried. And then they go to Medina, all of them. And once they arrive in Medina, they experience the, the answer to the dua of the Prophet ﷺ, who said, be steadfast, Allah will grant you and those with you among the weak a Fath, victory, and relief, faraj. And they experienced that. It took some time though. So this event marks the end of the sixth year of Hijrah. So we're now at the end of the sixth year of the Hijrah. And we begin next week with the seventh year of the Hijrah, where we look at the next phase in the post-Hudaybiyah environment. And this is where we look at the letters, the rasail that were sent by the Prophet ﷺ to the various emperors and rulers of these other civilizations outside of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, we also look at a few smaller excursions that occurred. We also look at some of the Jewish attempts to uh, affect him with sorcery. And we look, up to the, we look to the lead up to Ghazwatu Khaybar, the battle of Khaybar, which was with the Jews. Uh, we'll be looking at these things starting next week, inshallah. So we've now reached this significant shift in the post-Hudaybiyah environment. So we have the post-Hudaybiyah environment up until the conquest of Mecca. This is, this is where we are uh, between the 7th and the 8th year of the hijrah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sallam. Wallahu wa rasulu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. What are your questions? Yeah, I forgot to mention that. That's, that's why the dua that was said to Abu Basir was said 
before Abu Jandal before him, indicating that he's going to get out, and yeah, so he managed to escape and join them. He was one of them. Yeah. Devastating at some point. That's coming. So that's coming. So there's a, there's a whole lesson there with Thumama bin Uthal and the effects of that economically, and then this this embargo or this boycott that he enforced. Yeah. I don't know, but you understand the structure of Arabian society back then. There's always someone over you. For example, you are part of a tribe. Oh, yeah, I mean, theoretically. But he's also subordinate to the dictates of his tribe. It's not a, it wasn't an absolute dictatorship. Abu Sufyan was the de facto ruler, but even he is not this absolute tyrant that has unilateral authority to do just anything. He still has to consult because he has to maintain that fine balance between the tribes and the allegiances. And you, you can't just do things that will upset that and create a possible conflict between the tribes and clans. There's checks and balances, yeah. Yeah. And by guardian, that's what it means. It, it means like someone, there's going to be someone over you in your clan or your tribe. And it, they have to give you permission. Yeah. Uh, we don't really have that here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this comes. This comes. We'll be talking about that soon, inshallah. Which part? Well, we see the treaty gets broken by Quraysh first, and then this leads up to these effects. So these things start to happen, right? So this is the first test with Abu Basir. Other tests are going to happen that challenge the treaty being upheld. This is where we are right now in the immediate post for they be environment where everything is nice. It won't be nice for a long time. Things will happen. Yeah. Well, yeah.